morning. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the 49th chapter of Genesis. It can be located on page 42 of your pew Bibles. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, and a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. 
When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In the New Testament reading is from the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It's located on page 807 of your pew Bible. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconahi, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconah was the father of Shetil, and Shetil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elikium, and Elikium the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have promised to be with us this morning. Reveal yourself to our blind eyes. Soften our hearts of stone. Open our deaf ears to the word of your redemption in Christ. Lord, you know each of our needs. Lord, speak your truth to our place of hurting. Speak your truth to the places that we overlook. Bless us as a church. May we encourage one another this Lord's Day morning 
to hold fast, to remind one another that Jesus holds us fast. Lord, we pray for Richard Abernathy as he returns home. Lord, bless him. Give him strength. We pray for Joe Anderson. Continue to heal him. We pray for Doug Hay. It's been a year since his accident. Strengthen him day by day. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering from sickness. Give them strength. Give us strength to do your will. Lord, we pray for the churches of this county that they may proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Bless their ministries. We pray for our country, Lord. May there be a great revival as you draw the nations to yourself. We pray for our missionaries who are bold to take your word to the nations. For the Shibes and Cochets, bless the work of their hands. And Lord, may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, what I like about Genesis 49 is that this passage gives license to any preacher the divine opportunity to preach a 12-point sermon. Don't worry, I only have one long one. In 1900, a short book was published by Dr. A.E. Winship. It was entitled, Jukes Edwards. Jukes, J-U-K-E-S hyphen Edwards. A story of education and heredity. Jukes was a synonym and it was a safeguard for the identity of one of the families. The Edwards, in the book, was the family of Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century theologian, one, if not the most prominent theologian ever born on American soil. He was the president of the College of New Jersey, also known as Princeton. He was a preacher and a missionary. And in this book, Dr. Winship compares and contrasts the descendants of these two families over the period of 150 years, over 1,400 people. Max Jukes, which is the pseudonym of a particular family, had this as his family heritage, 310 professional paupers. If you don't know what that is, look it up. 
They used chemicals to produce drugs. 300 children died from lack of care. 50 women were described as notorious debauchery. 400 men who wrecked their bodies by abuse and asceticism. Seven murderers, 60 thieves, and 130 convicted criminals. What a family tree. Jonathan Edwards' family, by contrast, produced 100 ministers, 13 college presidents, 30 university professors, 120 graduates of Yale, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, a couple mayors, and the infamous vice president Aaron Burr, who gunned down Alexander Hamilton in a duel. What this book reveals is that actions have consequences for our families. The particular message of this book was that these consequences of our actions affect the generations to come after us. What we do has consequences beyond the immediate context of what we do. We were not created in isolation from one another, but we were created to be part of something bigger from ourselves. We were all born into a family. As this, at the same time, we have to look at ourselves and do we realize how our sin affects those around us? How often do we think of our sin and just think, Oh, it's just my sin. It doesn't affect those around me. But how does our sin affect our family and our friends, young and old, male and female, white or black, rich or poor? How do our sins have ramifications for everyone around us? And if we slow down enough and consider the consequences of our sin, we will see that they are not individual sins but that our sin affects everything in our lives. We cannot read Scripture and not see this truth played out in every narrative. From generation to generation, sin has its consequences. In the book of Genesis, in no way, shape, or form does the author try to escape that sin doesn't affect the family of Jacob, the descendant of Abraham. He doesn't try to sanitize the portrait of God's chosen people. This the family that God has called my people. This is the family through whom the promised seed is coming. The family to whom is supposed to bless the nations. Through this family, God would bless the descendants of all the earth. Through this family, he would make as populous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Yet it is a family plagued with polygamy and incest and prostitution, jealousy, murder, rape, 
idolatry, sibling rivalry, deceit, and deception. This is a picture of Jacob's family. As they have come to Canaan, from Canaan into Egypt. Because God was still blessing them. From Genesis 12 to 49, this is the family portrait of God's blessing for the world. These are not exactly the kind of people that inspire our confidence in God's plan. If you could take a family photo of your generations, of your family, I'm sure a lot of us, like many pictures, are we are matching colors or similar colors. If you sent out a postcard of this family picture, we'd have all the good updates of what each person has done and how they are succeeding in life. Yet in each of our families, we have things that we do not put on our Christmas card. Because we don't want the world to see. The author of Genesis does not hesitate to put the things that we don't talk around about around the Christmas table. How many of us have talked with our parents about their sin and its effects upon our lives? How many of us had had conversations with our parents to understand even the sin that they struggled with. Some of us, however, know the sins of our parents because we were recipients of that sin. How many of us have either rejected to follow in their footsteps, but yet we have found somewhere else to take our sinful desires? Or how many of us have coded over over our family sin and just said, this is just my family, and forgotten about the graces of God? Now, I know not everyone in this room has been afforded the opportunity to having this type of relationship with their parents that allows us to have these conversations of family histories But let me ask you, have you ever thought about how your sin affects the generations of your family? Have you ever thought about how your sin, maybe it be alcoholism or covetous or sexual immorality, how is your sin affecting the next generation? When I think of important passages in the Old Testament, there are three that come to my mind immediately. Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman. Genesis 12.1-3, the vision of God's people for the rest of Scripture. And then Exodus 34.6-7, which establishes the character of God. This is what Exodus 34 says. Listen. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. You should recognize that. This is what the psalmist put in our call to worship this morning. 
This is repeated five times throughout the Psalms, this verse particular, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But then he goes on to say, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions of sin by who, but who will know by no means clear the guilty. And listen to this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and the fourth generation. Our sin is always deeper and wider and more invasive than we could ever imagine. Think of the eight deadly sins from the fourth century monk Ponticus that was later changed into the seven deadly sins by Pope Gregory I of gluttony and lust, greed and pride and despondency and wrath and vainglory and sloth. How are these types of sins passed throughout generations? Sin is deep. Sin is wide. Sin is intrusive. And even if we have a face, and even if we haven't faced the implications of that sin yet, someone will. Because it goes deeper. And it goes deeper. And it will show its face. Even though we never see it. We are unable to read the book of Genesis and not consider generational sin. Yet here we find ourselves in Genesis 49. And there's Jacob, a swindler, a liar and a cheat of his own brother. A polygamist passing on a covenant blessing from Yahweh that he has also received from his family line. And he's now passing this blessing to his children. Because however deep and however wide and however intrusive sin is, God's grace is deeper and it's wider. And it's inclusive. And this is what Genesis 49 reveals. A family photo revealing the actual sin and its consequences. Yet the grace of God for his people. Here Jacob calls his sons together and gives them this final blessing from his deathbed. Yet as we read some of them, and I'm really glad Blake got the the reading with all the names and no one else. But as we read these blessings, I don't know if any of you listen to them, but some of them actually don't sound like blessings. Like take Reuben, for instance. In verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So far, so good. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Uh, Dad, you're supposed to be blessing me. Or Simeon and Levi. Brothers, uh, are, they're both brothers, weapons of violence of their sword. Simeon and Levi, with the sword, back in chapter 34, were looking for justice for their sister who had just been raped. But they did it not seeking justice, but injustice, with violence. 
They killed every male of an entire city. Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Benjamin only received half blessings. Asher and Naphtali received good blessings. And then we look at two specific blessings of Judah and Joseph. Now these are true blessings. Yet the scope of these two blessings are different. With Judah, we see a divine prophecy of God's future blessings upon his family. With Joseph, we do see a type of future fulfillment. But yet, the emphasis is on God's already fulfilled purposes. God does have future purposes for Joseph, but Jacob stresses the fulfilled promises of God in bringing them to Egypt. Judah is not the preeminent son, but he receives the preeminent blessing. And we might think each son really is just receiving what they deserve. They sinned, and so their blessings are God's judgment upon them. And at first glance, we might consider Judah as, you know, he's a stand-up guy. He, he must have done everything really well to receive this type of blessing But if you know your Bibles, you know that Judah is not squeaky clean. All you have to do is read Genesis 38, a very strategically placed chapter in the middle of Joseph's narrative, seemingly misplaced, almost disjoined from what's around it. And in Genesis 38, we don't see a great family portrait of Judah either. There we read of his Marriage to a Canaanite woman. After Isaac had told Jacob not to take the Canaanite woman as his wife. And there we also see Judah had two sons by this wife who were put to death by God because they were so evil. And then we read a narrative of unrighteousness, of double standards, and chauvinism as we read how Judah dealt with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. How he held himself up as righteous, and when he heard of her sin, he wanted it to publicly shame her and burn her. Yet he found out that her sin was brought upon her because of his own sin and sexual immorality, deceit, and deception. So that when he was so convicted by his sin, the only words he could say is, she is more righteous than I. If there's anyone who should have this, the type of blessing that Judah receives, sure not Judah. Sounds more like Joseph. Yet what we also see in the book of Genesis, in just small fragments, in just small, almost offhanded comments, is the unfolding of God's grace upon Judah. Judah played a significant role in Joseph's life. He was the brother that suggested that his other brothers not kill him, but that they sell him to slavery. I mean, that's not great, but it's better than death. We also see Judah 
would later offer himself to his father, Jacob, and say, if I take Benjamin down to Egypt with me, if he does not come back, my life is liable for his. Genesis shows the historic unveiling of God working in someone's life. This is the power of the grace of God. If you're on social media, as I know all of you are, I would be surprised if you had not heard the new released album, Jesus is King. If you haven't heard of it, you might be surprised of the artist of this album, Kanye West. Yes, that Kanye West has just released an album entitled Jesus is King. He has songs like Follow God and a new rendition of the old hymn, God Is. He also has songs by the name of Use the Gospel and Jesus is Lord. Yet, like many people on social media, I was actually very surprised by some of the reactions. One reviewer claims, I was dumbfounded at the amount of hate, judgment, and ridicule from who? From believers. To a man who claims that his soul has been changed, who was lost and has been found, and is bold enough in this society to admit that at one point in his life, he claimed to be God, but has now claimed Christ as king. He goes on to say, if Kanye West isn't redeemable by the blood of Christ, then neither am I. If the gospel isn't about living up to a, the gospel isn't about living up to a standard or meeting expectation, the gospel is of rest in the grace found in Jesus. It's a grace that covers and does not discriminate. It's the same grace that changed Saul from a professional murderer of Christians into Paul, a champion of the faith. Will Kanye fail? Yes, he will. But so will I. And instead of sitting and waiting for the I told you so moment, let us use this opportunity to show the same grace that Christ has shown us. It is Christ that holds us fast. Nothing that we do. Is Kanye West saved? I really hope so. What a victory for the kingdom of God. We should not root against him. We should not hope for his failure. We should hope for the glory of God's kingdom. What a testimony to the work of God's grace and the power of the Spirit through the preaching and the reading of the word. He has made a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Is his theology unshakable? No. But neither is every hymn printed in the Trinity hymnal. But our prayer should be, God, use him for your glory. Place godly men and women in his life to constantly remind him of the gospel and of his holy calling and set him apart for your use. And guess what? This should be the same prayers for us and our own children. 
This is the same prayer that Judah has, or that Jacob has for his son, Judah. This is what Ephesians 2 is all about. That we were dead in our trespasses, but by God's grace, he made us alive in Christ. This is the hope we have in the gospel for anyone's life. That by grace, God has claim over them. And that he will be their God and that they will be his people. And he changes us from the inside out. He does not expect us to change so that we are worthy. We are worthy because of Christ. And this is what happened in Judah's life. Verse by verse, small moment by small moment. God intervened and brought him to his knees. And he acknowledged his sinful past. And his goal was on mission for the kingdom of God. And this is what Jacob said to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse you? That who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribes, till tribute comes to him, and to him should be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to a vine and his his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture. In the blood of grapes, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. His brothers will praise him. This sounds very familiar to Joseph's dream. Yet here, the praise is reserved for Judah's offspring. His hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. His strength and his leadership shall win victory over his enemies. Here we see Jacob is foretelling of Judah's lineage. He will be a great lion. This is where the Bible, the biblical expression, the lion of the tribe of Judah emerges, a picture of a great and mighty lion. It is from this lineage that the king of Judah would come. Jacob is saying, from your bloodline, Judah, God's covenant promises that he gave my grandfather Abraham is going to come through you. Through your line, you will be made into a great nation. Through your line, your name will be great. Through your line, the nations of the earth will be blessed. For this is what God promised Abraham. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. If your eyes are strong enough and good enough, you'll notice in your Bibles that there are footnotes in this translation. I wanted us to just look at this for a moment. This, this passage no longer follows the same principles that the other narratives do. It's usually centered in your Bibles. That's because this passage is a prophetic poetry. Here, the translators have a really hard time finding the meaning because poetry has such strong imagery attached to it. 
It's not scientific language. It's not normal prose. But this prophetic language is used to speak so much more richly than we normally see in a narrative. Yet what Jacob is proclaiming of Judah is that from you shall come a king. And that king will have such great wealth and prosperity that you will tie your donkey's colt to a vine. Wine is an imagery of blessing. Wine is at the king's banquet table for everyone to drink. And this king will come because in Genesis 17, Abraham was promised a king. And if you know your history, who does this remind you of? Who does this passage speak of? Yes, you're right. King David. It was through King David that the nation of Israel was blessed. It was through King David in the Old Testament that Israel reached its highest point as a nation. It was through King David who had victory over his enemies and Israel knew rest in the land. Yet in 2 Samuel 7, King David is promised an everlasting covenant. He has promised an everlasting kingdom. David was anointed. He was the Messiah in the Old Testament. And through him, God blessed Israel. And through him, the nations came and bowed at his feet. Through David, the seed of the promise would come. But then David died. And so what are God's people waiting for? The seed. The everlasting king. And this king would come through David. Because David was in the line of Judah. He was in the line of Perez, the son of Judah. He was the son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah. Israel needed a king. Israel needed their sins to be covered. And even though the sins of Jacob's sons would wreak havoc on their families, upon their children, God's people were waiting for someone to undo the pain, to undo the sin and the suffering that their sin has caused. And this is the nature of the cross. Because the cross takes the suffering and the damage of our sin, and it nails it to our king. The nature of the cross is that it takes the things that hurt us, but yet it brings glory to God. Israel's seed was waiting for its redeemer, its reconciler, its substitute, its victor, its new Adam, its true Sacrifice. Israel was still waiting for Christ. In my Bible, I have a very strange comment written after verse 27. We've just gotten through all the blessings, blessings, hashtag, from Jacob to his sons. And I asked the question. How is, this a, how is this blessing helpful for the Israelites in the wilderness? 
That's the original audience. That's who Genesis was written for. How is this blessing helpful for them? For the tribes of Reuben. Uh, wait a minute. Jacob, are you done? Or is there, is, is there something else coming for, for our tribe? Because this doesn't seem like a very good blessing. How is this considered a blessing for them? This passage is a blessing for them because even in light of the sin of their forefathers, they are still included in God's covenant people. No matter how bad their sin was, no no matter how bad they disobeyed God, he was still their God and they were still his people. The Egyptians had just been cut off. But the 12 tribes are still God's covenant community. They are still God's chosen people, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased, despite of their sin. Jacob and the 12 sons are in Egypt, and they are speaking of this future fulfillment when God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Despite of their sin, God would use them to bless the nations. And in Matthew and Luke's gospel, we see this lineage from Abraham to Jesus. We see the corruption, the family portrait of everyone and all of their sins, and the Bible doesn't try to cover it up. Because God's purposes are greater than our sin. Jesus is the long-awaited king. He has had victory over his enemies. Yet he's not finished. Turn with me to Revelation 5. It's on page 1030 in your pew Bibles. Because there's one passage at the end of this blessing of Judah where this king said that your eyes will be like wine and your teeth will be white. And if you remember Isaiah's servant song of of the Savior, of of the suffering servant, it does not speak highly of him. It says, no one will look at you because, or desire you because of your beauty. But yet this is what we read in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders 
fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in it say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, we live in this strange state of Christ has been victorious in his resurrection. Yet we still deal with this sin. But we have good news. Because when Christ returns, his kingdom will last forever. And those who have faith in Christ will rule and reign and with him. And we will see our kings whose eyes are as dark as the wine and whose teeth are white. For he will come in glory. And our calling as God's people is to proclaim this message. It's to proclaim that the seed of Judah has come to be a blessing to the nations. Should nothing of our efforts stand, glory be given to Christ. For it is him that has conquered our sin. For those who boast, what is your life? It vanishes. Glory be to Christ. He will hold us fast. He is the one who sets our path straight. Even when we feel like our families, screw-ups, and mess-ups have ruined everything. Christ will hold us fast. And if you think that the pain of your family's past or your current sin will ever be able to make things right, you are wrong. It is Christ who is our righteousness. He is the faithful one. It is for us, his righteousness, for his people that he died. It is for us that he was raised. It is us that are blessed in Christ. We are the sons and daughters who receive the covenant blessing. Even because of our sin. People of God. God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Your sin has no hold over you. The blessings of Christ are upon you. And he's making all things new. Let's pray. Father, bless us. Renew us. 
strengthen our families. In the name of Christ, amen.